Have you ever wanted to be more superhuman? Are you ready to contribute to the future of humanity while well, you're in the right place? Join Michelle and AJ now for the Becoming Superhuman podcast. You'll be glad that you did. Hello, everyone. I can see us all in the Superhuman Summit group, which is a good sign. It must mean we're live. I'll just take a zoom on my screen so I can see everybody. I'm the odd one oh. out. I don't have the cape on. <laughs> we should have lent it to you. Yeah. <laughs> AJ has more than two capes. One of these capes I, has I have like Richard Branson. Is that true, AJ? Yeah, I should have remembered which one it was or tagged yeah. it, shouldn't I? Yeah, Branson's won one. Um, Stephen's just come on. Can you make him a co-host, Michelle? You'll find yeah. him in the attendees. Um, yeah, I should have tagged it, shouldn't I? He wore it up at the top of Necker Island for me and did a did a pose in it. <laughs> okay. So... Hang on. Welcome everyone. Welcome back yeah, for day three to the group. Yeah, welcome back to day three of the Superhuman Summit. It has been amazing. We almost broke the airwaves yesterday <laughs> when we had Sister Janti on. We had something like um, 500 people trying to join all around the world and um, 13 or 14 countries. So it's been phenomenal. And we've had just such a high caliber of speakers here delivering their amazing um, IP and thought leadership for free for us, um, which has just been phenomenal. And today is no exception to that. Um, and you'll see now there's four of us on the screen because today's um, first topic, and you'll see Phil Preston here, is all about increasing your impact through superhuman collaboration. So we're a collaborative, we're a collaborative effort, and that's why we thought we'd all jump on initially. So um, I'll hand over to my co-host and co-creator of Human Power and the Superhuman. Summit, Michelle. And so thanks, AJ. And because Phil's topic is all about superhuman collaboration, we just wanted to tell you a little short amount of the story behind the summit just to kick off. So AJ and I have been collaborating for quite a long time in a range of different projects, but our main collaboration is the Human Power Project. So the way that Human Power started is the word human came out of my brand, which is being more human, and the word power came out of AJ's brand, which is UQ Power. So even the history, interestingly enough, of the name Human Power is a collaborative, um, I guess, not effort, but a collaborative inspiration is what I would call it. And the day we actually had the conversation where Human Power was created is quite ironic when we think back to that day. We had been wanting to do another collaboration regarding speakers and it wasn't really getting the energy, it wasn't going where we wanted it to go, so we thought let's switch it out and focus on this idea of human power. And now we've sort of done this full circle coming back to collaborating with really inspiring speakers and incredible humans who are here with us and sharing their souls and answering the questions. And in my mind, that's an example of a superhuman collaboration. And I'd also like to add, actually, AJ, can you add your connection to Stephen so people can just join those dots a little bit? Yeah, so on my screen he's below, but I might be somewhere else on his. <laughs> um, the delicious human down there, Steve-O, <laughs> um, Stephen and I worked together over 20 years ago showing our grey hairs or, yeah, I won't say any more, Steve. Um, 
Uh, we worked together over 20 years ago um, in a health service and worked on a values project in particular. We worked side by side for many years, but we worked particularly on a values project and helping a hospital define their values and their staff and everyone really tap in and connect there. And I think we found so much alignment in our own values and our own ethics and way of working, Steve, and we've stayed in touch ever since. Stephen's been away for over a decade in India working and we've still connected and stayed connected and I've visited in India um, all over those years. So I think the power of collaboration can expand beyond time, beyond boundaries and borders. Absolutely. And then, Stephen, maybe if you can share about your element in the collaboration in regards to the network of meditators that you've been tapping into for us every single morning. Yep, thanks. Thanks very much. And, well, when we got together and we were talking about um, having a meditation, just the three of us every day to set the intent, uh, and I suggested it to a friend and she said, well, why don't you open up the meditation to everybody um, so that you've got a collective of people setting the intent for the day. Um, and that's that's how it was born. And I was easily able to find a, a group of people um, that were more than willing to come on board and add their energy uh, to the program. And so I think it's had an amazing effect and has also introduced people who may not have had um, exposure to meditation before to just uh, kickstart it and have a go. Excellent. So, Phil, I'm not sure how closely our short example of a superhuman collaboration meets the theory or other practice that you might share, but we just wanted to be able to share a little bit of the history and the insight because we haven't really done that in the summit as yet as to how the summit was born. But I know in our experience of collaboration, much of it is emergent and that certainly has been the case with us. So thank you so much, AJ, and thank you, Stephen. Um, and We're going to hop off and leave the Brady okay, Bunch look. Right. <laughs> and we'll see you later on today. Thanks, guys. Okay, bye. All right, over to you, Phil. I think AJ's done a bit of the introduction, so that's yeah. worked out well. Yeah, that's um, fine. Um, yeah, do, do you want me to take from here? or? You... Yeah, yeah, go yeah. for it. Take it from okay. here. Thank you. And I'd like to re reflect on your point there that collaboration is hard work. So everything you see on screen, and I'm sure many of you watching this know, it's like the iceberg principle. You're seeing the bit at the top and there's a whole lot under the water that you don't see. Um, I learned from being involved in my kids' uh, school as the PNC president that when you put on a sausage sizzle, it only takes two minutes to buy a sausage, right? <laughs> but it can be two or up to 20 hours of work to coordinate people and gas bottles and sausages and onions and all the other things that go with it. People don't turn up on the day and, and blah, blah, blah. So collaboration is hard work, but you get exponential rewards from it when it works well. So that's the theme of today. But what I'd like to invite you into my world about three years ago where I was in Wagga or Wagga Wagga in regional New South Wales. And it's a town of about 55,000 people. It's, it's quite a thriving, um, decent regional centre. And I was there to help facilitate a high-stakes meeting. And, and I'll give you a little bit, bit of the backdrop. So we're in this government building. It's a really nondescript building on a side street in Wagga. We go up to the first floor, and the meeting room we're in is one of those wonderful rooms that has no natural light. That day, um, <laughs> it's a good start, isn't that, when you walk into a room yeah, and there's no windows? No natural light, um, no windows, flickering fluoros, and, you know, on any given day you probably thought it's not the best place. Uh, we were bringing together about 20 different people from very different backgrounds, 
So on one hand, we had the largest business in Wagga, which is a meat processing company. Some people would call it an abattoir, but they do do a lot of processing around their goods as well. They employ nearly a 1,000 people. They had a problem. So their problem was they need more entry-level workers. They were really struggling to get locals turning up to want a job and then keeping a job. And their view of the world was a little bit like, well, we've got jobs. Why don't, why don't you people, locals, come and get them? Um, we can't understand why that's happening. And their, their mindset historically was, well, when there's a, a local event on, we'll have a barbecue, we'll put up our sign, everyone will think we're great folks and they'll come and want to work for us. So their view of, I guess, community engagement and trying to solve that problem was, was probably at fairly early stages and they, they would admit that themselves. On the other hand, we had community representatives, social services who were working with the community and also government departments who were working with the social housing areas in Wagga where there's very high um, youth unemployment. So here we have the situation where the company needs workers. We have a lot of, uh, we have high unemployment, particularly in the youth segment. Again, it seems like a no brainer. Now the community themselves had some pretty jaded views of this workplace or wanting to work there. Some of them were perhaps founded, but I found some of them people were drawing on stories that applied to advertise in other towns and other states even so you know there, there was clearly some misperceptions going on but if if i capture the community narrative and this is what someone actually said to us they said look the meatworks they're a pack of bastards who kill cows and employ four five seven visa workers so we had the community side coming together with the business um, and what i'd call a fairly high stakes meeting and it could have gone horribly wrong Absolutely, because every single one of those stakeholders have an entirely different worldview and perspective, although it's a similar issue that you're talking about. That's, That's what's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we're dealing with very different mindsets. However, I'm glad to say from the moment they entered the building, we had them eating out of our hands. And I want to go through the process that led to that because, you know, you're sitting there as I'm sure someone who likes to make change. Um, someone who wants to change and create a better world. Now, my context of talking about this project is very different to yours, but the, the principles we're going to talk about are exactly the same. And what I like about collaboration is it's sort of cheap. It's, it's almost free, but it requires effort. It doesn't require a lot of tangible cost. It requires a lot of intangible cost and effort, but you can get great results from it. And I'll tell you a bit more about that project later on because we're three years down the track and there's some fantastic results that have come out of it. And it's sort of a segue into talking about COVID-19 because with COVID-19, governments are raising a lot of debt. They're going to be paying off that debt for a long time. There won't be as much funding around to do a lot of these social supports that we're currently used to. It's already tight. And in the future, it'll be even tighter. So we have to be doing more as citizens. Businesses have to be playing a bigger role. Um, not-for-profits actually are being pressured by government to, to do more with less. Um, so we're all going to have to work together a little bit more smarter and more collaboratively to get there. So that's setting setting the scene. Um, and now you might be coming at this from the point of view of a solopreneur, uh, a small business owner, the head of the household. You might work for a large business or a large government or not-for-profit entity. It actually doesn't matter. I'd argue you play a role somewhere here. Um, in this chain, whether you're directly doing it, um, you can be a, a doer, a facilitator, or an advisor to help make these outcomes happen. So I'm going to set the scene for um, talking about some of the methodologies you use to make it happen. 
What, what I might do just before I'm going to jump in there for a second and just encourage everyone, as you're listening, everybody, if you have a comment and a ha, a question, any kind of feedback at all, please just pop it into the chat box. If you've got a specific question that you want to make sure is not missed at all and is absolutely addressed before the end of the session, then put it in the question and answer box. So chat box for general chit-chat, Q&A for specific um, issues. Thanks, Phil. Well, no, you're right. I was actually going to say, regardless of COVID-19, this trend was already underway anyway, and I'm going to give you a little quiz now, um, see if you can guess the answer to this question. Um, so if you think about 100 years ago, none of us were alive then, I don't think. I'll have to check that later. How many people <laughs> do you think were on the planet? So the nearest 1 billion. How many people do you think were on the planet 100 years ago? And I'd and love you to type. you get a prize of your new book or something? Uh, well, you I was going to put that out there. So, Michelle, you've led the way. Um, yes, there is a book I'll be talking about later. If you would like a, a copy of Connecting Profit with Purpose, the first correct answer in the chat box um, will win a copy of the book. So give us a whole a, a round number. Um, Under a billion is one answer that we have. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you a clue. It's either one, two or three. Oh, and someone guessed four billion. Someone guessed one. So I'm assuming they mean one billion. That's from Claire Agnew. Is she the lucky winner? Not yet. Not <laughs> so yet. Keep guessing. Narrowed it down. Two. Two. There you go. Leah um, just got in. I think. Um, Leah just beat Carmen. Go, Leah, with the, uh, finger strokes and how fast you are. <laughs> so thank you for participating there. And the reason I wanted to point that out is because today, I don't know if you know how many people are on the planet today. Michelle, do you have? Any idea what we're up to, roughly? No, billions. I'm not good with numbers. So. Okay, right. But you're right, it is billions. It's We're about 7.6, 7.7 billion, nearly at eight. So in the space of 100 years, it's almost mind-blowing. We've gone from 2 billion to 8 billion. So mm. that's a, a four-fold increase in such a short um, space of time. We have a 7.6 to advance. There you go. There is a clock um, that you can look at online, like a UN clock that tells you that. That changes like every second. Yeah, it's clicking over. I don't know how they factor COVID-19 into that. That that could be interesting. Mm -hmm. The reason I point that out is the way we were doing things 100 years ago, the way we're thinking about business and society and the way we interact with each other was very different to what we're doing now. 100 years ago, we were still setting sail and, and finding new lands, new resources and new things, whereas today we know we've pretty much raked over the planet. It's a very crowded and connected place. So, again, this whole idea of collaboration is, is really come through with COVID-19 because, as we see, you know, the health of society and the health of business are intrinsically connected. Everything we do is quite connected. So I would just uh, ask you, before we get going, um, another quick question. Now, which sectors do you represent out of these seven options? Uh, we might have, you know, you might be a solopreneur like me. You might be the head of a household small to medium business, you might be involved in several of these. Uh, you might be working with big business, not-for-profits, government, uni slash education. If you'd like to type in, you can just type in the number if you like. Um, you might There might be seven numbers. It'd be good to get a feel from, from where you're coming from. I'm just going to read those out for everyone. So one is if you're a solo, drop in a one. Two, if you're a head of household, drop in a two. Three, if you run a small to medium-sized biz. Four, if you're in a big business or run a big business. Five is a not-for-profit. Six is government. And seven is uni or education. So drop in the actual number that applies to your context and situation at the moment. I'm seeing what's coming through. and we have, We've had about four ones. We've had 
Um, the odd two, quite a few threes, so quite a few small to medium business. We've had one five, so someone with a um, non-for-profit, um, that was our book winner. So we, we have quite a spread there. So um, We have a six and a one, two, three. There's more on Facebook as well and another Oh, okay. There you so go. It's, yeah, quite a mixture. So we've got quite a nice spread. And so what I'll be talking about will be relevant to you. The question is what role do you play and can you play? And I'm going to come back to that point um, as to some of the leverage points around that in a moment. So thank you for, for sharing that. It's good to have an idea of who's in the room. Just a little bit about my journey to here. Uh, I'm a born and bred Tasmanian. I don't know if you can tell that. Can you tell that, Michelle? I'm a born and bred Tasmanian too. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> we're, we're probably related. We probably are. <laughs> now, uh, my one um, claim to the fame is that um, when I was growing up in Tasmania, my first job was in a Coles supermarket, my first paid job. I was working on fruit and veg and um, there was a lady working on deli who I sort of fancied. And it turns out she, uh, not at the time, but it turns out she was the sister of Princess Mary of Denmark. Ah, so that was that Princess, you know. <laughs> Princess Mary's sister, Jane, I had a bit of a crush on. I was in fruit and veg. She was in Delhi. Um, she didn't really reciprocate that, uh, so, you know, I lost out there. <laughs> but I thought I'd point out Tasmania is a small place because her father was also a, a professor um, that was teaching me at university. So in Tassie, um, yeah, you can't really get away from anyone down there. But so in terms of that, that journey, uh, I did my university. There weren't many jobs in Tassie, so I moved to Sydney, started working with an insurance company, and then went into the investment world. And that was a great career for 19 years. However, you get to a point, and uh, I'm guessing some of you on this call have worked in organisations or in, in large businesses and corporations where you just go, oh, can I do this again? You know, Can I front up again today? To, to actually live through this lifestyle. And, and one of the things you go through is that um, it's a very physical thing. I find you would have your security card and you'd come in and, and the door would go click when you went through the door every day and it almost felt like you had to leave some of your values outside the door and adopt some of the organisational values when you went in the door. Now, you're never going to have perfect alignment between your values and your organisation, I don't think, but there are some areas where they do get quite extreme. And then there's other people within the organisation you're working with who have very different values to you. So that was one of the big trade-offs. At the time, um, this is around 2006, climate change was becoming a real issue and I had a young family and I was just purely frustrated. You know, what do you do as an individual? You know, it's such a huge problem. It requires such great coordination. It's almost overwhelming. And then at the same time, I'm doing some things in my local community, but I'm pretty busy during the day. So Finding time to be active in the community and make change was hard. And when you do do something, you sort of think, well, is it is a little bit token? You know, am I really making a difference? So to sum all that up, I'd say when you're working in those types of roles, you can feel quite trapped because unless you want to just exit your role and go and work for a not-for-profit, you, you're probably going to trade off money and other things. So you feel like you, you, you're trapped in, <clears throat> in that sort of cycle. However, I did that because I just felt like, I needed a life change and I jumped out of that career not knowing what to do next. And I, I, uh, I'm just curious if you've got the same, same story or same background or same experience, um, you know, I'd love to hear from you at some just stage. Had, uh, AJ drop in and say, she said, ooh, yes, I left the corporate because of misalignment with my values. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I'm sure it's not just her that has that connect can connect with that story. Yeah. That's right. And, and so, um, 
and I guess the next part of that story was then this this journey of discovery, which was a couple of years of trying to figure out how to be a consultant and a, a speaker and a facilitator, because I'd only ever worked in big corporate, and that's sort of you know like being wrapped in cotton wool to some degree. So that was um, quite an interesting journey, and also I had this revelation about two two years into this journey, which almost turned what I just said on its head because. I realised in terms of social impact and social change, sometimes you can do a lot more from within an organisation than you can outside of it. So it's not necessarily all bad being in a big organisation. It's a question of sort of what you do and how you do it, perhaps within there, if you have that latitude. Because larger organisations have more resources, more people, and but it is shifting the, the social good piece away from you as an individual and putting it into more of an organisational context. So it's you know it's less about, say, riding around Australia raising money for, for a person um, who you're trying to help and more towards how do I, how can I help mobilise the resources in this organisation towards um, some social good or common good. And I think the other thing that I find as um, someone running my own business is running your own business gives you nowhere to hide. You can't, there's there's no layers to be able to blame that person who didn't do that or get back to your email or who had that idea. If yep. something works well, it's because you've done a good job. And if something fails, it's because you've made it fail, you know. And I think that level of accountability is dramatically different to what people in organisations experience. It's, it's a whole new world. And, and I often liken it to, a say, a dentist retiring and becoming a, a door-to-door vacuum um, cleaner salesman. You know, that transition is going to be pretty hard. You're a technical expert and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got to be out there selling and marketing and, and doing a whole range of other things. It's, it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. One of the other oh, things. Um, sorry, I just wanted to just share one comment. That someone yeah, said, please. Now I understand why I have such a challenge with my swipe card. Values, misalignment, love it. So there's an epiphany for the day. <laughs> well, well, maybe if your swipe card's not working, it's trying to tell you something. <laughs> Listen to your swipe card. <laughs> I'll touch on this briefly but won't go into it big time today but one of my passion areas is really about understanding where business agendas overlap with community needs so it's when profit meets purpose and so that's what the book is all about that I just spoke about then but if I relate it to that project in Wagga what we had was a company that really was struggling to get workers and when they did come in they turned over really quickly therefore it was hitting their bottom line it was affecting their ability to ramp up production and serve their customers in, in a whole range of ways. So it was a serious business issue. And at the same time, the community had was experiencing high unemployment. So we had that overlap of interest. And that is so powerful because when you're going to talk to the company, and this is the collaboration piece when you're trying to bring parties together, you, know, you knew they had some skin in the game. And, and part of the secret in collaboration clearly is around understanding what's driving and motivating people to be involved. I'm sure, Michelle, you've, you've probably experienced that in many ways. In yeah, and I've experienced that both in successful collaborators and unsuccessful ones because you, you almost know from the start whether, you know, you're the one pushing the idea and, um, you know, creating the concept of the collaboration. You can easily get a sense of whether someone's into that or not and, People, you know, if you're saying it has to be about values alignment and the correct purpose, I would absolutely agree with that because if it's not like that from the beginning, you've got no hope of it working. It's interesting too because in corporate contexts you do get some bizarre behaviours because it's not so much attached to an individual, it's an organisational thing. And look, a quick story is someone saying, well, we 
took us ages to get to this partnership. This was between a university and a very large consulting firm. But the moment they signed that partnership deal, things, behaviours changed very dramatically. And one party clearly just wanted to wrench data and information out of the other. And it turned (laughs) turned bad very quickly. And what that means is the party still fulfilled the contractual obligations they had, but you're talking bare minimum. So you're missing opportunity in building a really powerful and valuable relationship there. Anyway, I digress. Um, So part of my journey was really figuring out that I was good at bringing people together and helping to facilitate these processes. And it's, you know, it's frustrating when you can see two people or two organizations sitting there and and you can see the win they can achieve together, but they don't want to explore it together. So if you can be a catalyst in that process, and, and that's going to be one of my challenges to you out of today is to say, you know, you don't have to be the doer here. You could be the, the catalyst or someone who helps facilitate this process. And that's a way of really leveraging your, your impact. Now, in that process, um, so think, uh, look, I don't know if everyone watching has a particular social mission or cause in mind. Maybe it's just um, a chance to take five seconds out and, and clarify if you do have one, what it is. And maybe drop it in the chat box if you yeah, have it. Cool. I'd invite you to drop it in the chat box Yeah, as well. vision or social impact statement or something that's, that's the core of what holds you together and what matters to you the most. Just drop it down below in the chat box for us. That would be great. And no judgment. We're all... Uh, doing what we're doing, and uh, we're not going to read them all out, but if, if you'd like to let everyone know what you've got, that that's fine. I mean, being personally, my, my mission, I've just realised it's a little bit bigger than what I thought it was because it's really about helping. At the end of the day, what I'm all about is, is knowing that everyone out there has something valuable to contribute to society. And if I can play a role in helping people to realise what they can bring, then that's I feel great at the end of the day, and I think we're all better off. So... Um, you know, that, that's what I figured out my mission is, but in specific assignments and, and projects, um, it then gets broken down a bit. It's interesting. Oh. I'm just going to comment on the fact that no one has put it in. So that either tells or someone's just put it in. I tell a big fat lie and they've said making a difference is their mission and someone else put love and connection. Fantastic. It doesn't have to be bigger than Ben-Hur. Just a few words. Drop in. What is it that makes you get out of bed every morning? That's all we're talking about. And I say sometimes we have really clear ideas about this and other times, you know, it's what well, I, I would hark back to that thing. You know, sometimes you feel like, wow, I'd love to make a difference here, but how do I go about it given my limited time and, and resources? How do I do that thing? So this is like, a bit like a stakeholder map when you lock onto that social purpose. So connecting people to their wisdom is something that's just been put in. You know, where are you currently playing there? Is this something... Uh, if you're in an organisation, is this very much about your team and it's at the level you're interacting on now? Or it could even be in a, say, personal um, scenario, more about family and friends and associates. So what sort of interactions are going on there and, and do you need to do more in that space or less? Likewise, if you're working for an organisation or with organisations in the way you, you do your solo work, you know, is that the level you're operating at, helping the organisation run better? Um, are you helping that organisation work with its partners better or your own business partners better? And then there's a group outside of that, which I'd call stakeholders, which is generally um, customers of the organisation, um, its regulators, its community interests, um, you know, it's everyone else. And at the moment, what we're finding right now is uh, a lot of big businesses, for example, are realising 
these stakeholders. You know, if you look at the, the health system right now, government has come in and done some pretty big deals with the private health system to say we are one together now. So the private health system might have seen themselves within this sphere for a long time. They're now very much in partnership here. That's not just someone who sets the rules. That's someone they have to work with really actively. That's interesting. It's very connected. Someone's um, mission statement is to build a bridge of health and healing and that person says, obviously, I will need lots of collaborators. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, and, and it's exciting to think how that might happen, where that might go. And what we're going to go into now, it's a bit of a segue, actually, into what the journey looks like. I'd argue for any project, uh, but um, particularly when you, you're dealing with social change and really making something exciting happen, this is what I'd call um, sort of the funnel. Um, you, know, you can't quite see the bottom of that. I'll, I'll come to what's at the bottom there in a moment. So when you're starting out, you you might have an idea and, and people have expressed those in the chat box, which is awesome. Now, some of you might be advanced in those ideas, but some of you might still be at that dreaming stage. You know, this is something I'd really like to do, but it's just that. And this uh, stage up here is very much about creativity. Let's try and write that up. Can you see that or did I go off the chart? We can see it, yeah. Uh, just not. So if I come back to that project in Wagga, you know, we started at the dreaming stage. I was talking about these win-win principles at a forum and someone from government, from family and community services came up to me and said, I can see how that lines up with what we're trying to do. We spoke for hours. We literally got kicked out when the lights were being turned off um, because we just were in that pure dream stage and it was creative. You know, we could do this, we could do that. Um, but then the next stage is one where you've got to develop your idea. And that's where you've got to be a little bit more grounded and that's very much about exploration. And typically, and interestingly, every one of these stages requires a different kind of thinking, an intentional different kind of thinking on your part. Right. Yeah. Great observation and remind me to come back to that in a moment as well. So this is the part where you, you probably go to your trusted advisors or your people who know the landscape and you bounce a few ideas off them because that will you know bring that funnel in pretty quickly. Am I heading in the right direction or is the idea sound but we might need to do it in a slightly different way? And uh, I'll talk you through that process in our project in Wagga just so you get a feel for what it looks like in a, in a real context. And I'll do that shortly. But the next piece is you start locking on to the thing you do want to do and that's design. So um, that's very much around planning. Who's going to do what, why and how? Now, if you're working in an organisation, this is the point where you're writing a business plan. I don't know about you, but I'm allergic to business plans. I'm really bad at them. You. <laughs> <laughs> I like talking about them, but I'm not so good at doing them. Um, then you have this, you know, the actual doing. So this is the, the process. This is where you're executing the plan. And as Michelle said, had a really good observation there. As a leader, if you're leading this change or facilitating this change, your style is changing a lot over this process because you're going from someone up here who's kind of sort of herding cats to down here is to ex executing plans and making sure, you know, risks are managed and things happen as it, uh, sequentially as they're supposed to. And that's quite a different mindset. So you're dealing with, I guess, a well-identified group of people doing what they've committed to say they're doing versus we could do anything up here. And if I can just add, um, if anyone listened to the talk by Murray Guest the other day on strengths, you can apply what he's talking about to this funnel because every single one of us have strengths at different stages of that funnel. We wouldn't necessarily be the person who operated at every single level. That's right. And I've got to add to that, 
personally, as a someone who's, uh, I guess, a facilitator and, and a consultant and strategist in this space, um, I do, and I suspect many of us who are solopreneurs often do have to scale up and down as best we can. Sometimes we have to traverse these spaces regularly, and it is really hard. It can be quite draining, particularly, um, Michelle, as you're saying, you've got to adjust your style as you're going along. So the last bit down here, I don't know if you can quite see it, it says delivery. So let's deliver outcomes. Um, let me just put the word outcomes up here. So social outcomes in this case is what we're aiming at. And in our project in Wagga, it's taken us three years to get to here. The actual process, the doing bit has been going for 15 months now out of that three-year period, and we have 64 people um, in employment, 64 people who would be classified as seriously disadvantaged. Um, for example, um, in some of these community areas, you have uh, kids growing up in families that where five generations have never held down a job. So you're coming from a background of someone's never seen anyone in their family going to work, being punctual, doing some of the things that, that many of us would be used to. And so you, you're actually getting a pretty big result, not just for the community, but also in terms of um, government and other objectives when you when you can create those types of outcomes. Mm, someone others. said that's an awesome result. So well done. Yeah, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to say I was more involved up at this stage. I'm less involved now. So, And that's all part of the process. You don't want these things to be hinging on someone coming in as an outsider to make them happen. You want to help create an organic engine that keeps going, and that's that's one of the keys. And we did this on very little funding. So quite often government programs are, let's spray a couple of million dollars of this to, to make it happen and mobilise a whole lot of people to run this training, that training. We didn't do any of that. It was really just about coordinating existing players in a smarter way. So that's that's the, the leverage you can get. Can I just say something on that? Um, Please. And maybe you can tease it apart a little bit more for us because I think sometimes people can think that collaboration is hard work and who are they going to collaborate with and what's the topic going to be about. But what you've just said there really appeals to me because you've, you've based on my version of what you've just said is that you've had this subtle move around of players, maybe just putting, maybe it's as simple as putting different people in a room together and yeah. having a conversation and it's birthed this whole you know, process or project. So I think that's a really important thing for us to pay attention to. It doesn't have to be hard. In fact, sometimes tweaking the dynamic is the thing that's going to get you the best result. That's that's leverage, right? And that's when you feel great as someone who can help, you know, be a, a catalyst or advisor or facilitator of this process. You, If you can get those outcomes, it's just awesome. Um, and I'd say a lot of it is often around what I'd call process accountability. So when you get people in a room, quite often someone will say, oh, yeah, we'll help you do this or we'll help you do that. Let's together and do this. Everyone walks out of the room and none of it happens. So part of the skill is having that just minimal amount of support that can in, can check in and make sure these things are still going on. Um, but that's perhaps a bigger bigger discussion for another day and happy to have that another day. Mm-hmm. Roland, I want to step back a little bit now and talk about the sort of what, why, when of collaboration. And I think the first bit, when to collaborate, we know. Um, you know, you don't try and collaborate if it's unnecessary. If you can clearly do something on your own and get the result you need, do it. However, we all know that in many situations, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts um, that come into it. So there are situations where we can't do it all ourselves or we can't get that outcome and we've got to bring others in. So I think, you know, if you've got a great idea about um, the social impact you want to make, 
then you your first decision is, do I, can I do this alone or does it make sense for me to be collaborating with others? And you can work that out for, for your own thing. The next part is, well, what is collaboration and why is it sometimes hard? And for that, Michelle, you can be my crash test dummy here. We can do it together um, and you can do it um, wherever you're watching from. The good thing is we can't see you, but you can see us. But Michelle, would you take your left hand, please? Pat yourself on the head. And while you're doing that, rub your tummy in a circular direction. You can't see my tummy, so you can't uh, see. I've raised my hand up. Okay. So yeah. are you going okay at it? I'll rub my chest. Yeah, you're doing pretty well. So you can stop now <laughs> if you like, or you can keep going. <laughs> I'll stop now. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, you know, quite often many of us did that as kids. And when I was growing up in, in Tassie, that's what we did at kids' parties before Xbox came along, I guess. <laughs> um, that was our way of having fun. Hard for Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but what I'd say is when you're a kid, when you first do that and someone asks you to do it, uh, I found that, that this hand was going around in circles or that one was going up and down. I was really uncoordinated. Than the other way, yeah. Yeah, it was really uncoordinated um, and it was, it was about doing two different things at the same time. And collaboration is exactly the same. You're actually doing two different things at the same time. So, so let me explain. We often think of collaboration as working towards a common goal, and it is. That, that is correct, but that's just one half of the equation because the other half is that we're trading resources and skills um, to, eat, to meet our individual goals as well. So when you think about the superhuman summit here, you know we're all, Michelle and AJ and I and a whole range of people are working together towards a common goal of creating a great event experience, but we all have our own individual things going on, right? Um, there's there's reasons why we may or may not be, be doing this. So you've got to be very aware of them. And when you get into a collaboration, particularly where you've got lots of organisations or people involved, it is a weakest link challenge. So some, if someone's not playing their part or playing their role, then that can, that can weaken the whole chain. And so that is the hard part of collaboration is to keep the chain together so that you can realise the benefits. Can I ask you a question? Sure. This- this just um, came across my mind yesterday when I was doing the wrap-up and the intro of your talk for today. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there – clearly there's some people that collaborate better than others, but mm-hmm. do you think that there's some people that just flat-out can't collaborate? Um, that is the perfect segue into my next point because uh, I was going to mention, <laughs> in my experience, I'd say, yes, there is some people who just don't get the collaboration thing, but I'd say it's probably only 5%. I believe 95% of people want to collaborate. However, the reason many don't is because of fears that they have around collaboration. Mm. Those fears manifest on three different levels. And when I'm going into a collaborative situation, this is what I'll be be working on. The fears will either be about them or, or, or us as individuals. So, you know, it might be about I'm not socially confident, so I don't I don't feel comfortable going out and talking to other people. You know, it could be an inner fear. Um, there was a university project I was helping along last year and they were struggling to get traction because they had people coming from academia and administration and student reps all working together, but they weren't actually doing anything. They were just having a talk fest, going away and then coming back and having another talk fest. Anyway, once we, we drilled down, so running a session around that, we had to get everyone comfortable and then about 45 minutes in when they were more willing to share things that were going on, we started saying, okay, what's getting in the way of this project? When we went around, people said various things, but then I remember a lady said, look, to be honest, I'm just sitting here. Um, 
I'm half here, but I'm half thinking about all the work that's piling up on my desk while I am sitting here. And the rest of the room just all went, yeah, and they all nodded. Um, and so clearly this was a pretty deep issue for most of the people in the room. That doesn't mean we could solve it, but it was very much about them and what's going on in their world. But at least we knew what we had to aim at to help unlock that problem. Almost like the collaboration for them was just another thing on the to-do list. That's right. That kind of a thought. Yeah. At this time, the people who are listening, we'd invite you to drop into the chat box as well. If there's any fears that you either have currently or have had in the past about collaboration, please drop them in so we can add to this part. It would be great to find out. So that's level one, what's going on with you. Level two is about, well, who am I collaborating with? Do I like those people? Do I trust them? Do I think they're the right people? Um, If we start getting results here, are they going to try and run off and take all the credit? Um, Are they going to share information with me? So there's all these group dynamic issues that come into play. Now, remember when I said we brought the the meat processing company together with all the community and social service representatives, you know, we had some disparate views there. We, We didn't have a lot of trust between the two parties. So we had to work on that level as well. And I'm going to unpack that in a moment. And the third level is the purpose. Sort of why are we doing this? Because unless you think this is worthwhile and it makes sense, then you, you're not going to come on board or no one's going to come on board if it doesn't make sense for them. And within that purpose piece, it's saying, well, what's the individual thing I'm trying to achieve as well as the collective? And we can't ignore that. We'd love to say, oh, I don't care about the individual bit, but it's a fact of life that um, even if it just makes us feel good, that is an individual motivation in, in a collaboration situation. So it can be the fears are either about sometimes about us sometimes about the group and the group dynamic and sometimes about the purpose, you know, why are we doing this and what are we doing? Someone just make an interesting point that it can be about the psychological safety in an environment. It has a lot to do with how much fear you might be feeling in regards to entering into a collaboration. And, you know, even in regards to your organisational example, depending on the different organisational cultures that you have or that your team or business unit has, that can be something that plays into whether you have a comfort level of collaborating with that other group or not. That's right. And that, that term, psychological safety, will come up again very shortly. And I'm just keeping an eye on the, the time too because I don't want to go too much over time. Um, but we're, we're sort of getting there. So if I unpack, you know, what went on at the in Wagga, you know, how did we get people in the room and have them eating out of our hands? You know, we minimised the risk of things going wrong. You can't, you can't control what everyone does or says or thinks. But, uh, you know, we, we did go out there and we tested our ideas. We did lots of one-on-one meetings. We went to the people who were trusted or seemed to know the landscape of the community quite well. That was something we did well before that meeting took place. Uh, we actually used existing forums in the town. So the, the mayor runs a business breakfast series. We convinced the mayor to run a business breakfast. So a whole lot of companies and other businesses came along. And so from that, we could start identifying what were their goals, what were their drivers, what were their fears that they would have around a collaborative process. But not only running a business forum, we also put on a separate forum for not-for-profits and government reps because they feel more comfortable together. And in in their own environment, they are more willing to discuss what was going on. And, you know, to be honest, some of these meetings were really hard. Sometimes they were going, ah, oh, we've tried that before, hasn't worked, won't work this time. Um, but what I remember is one of the big um, advocates of our process and someone who became a very important partner in our, our process at that meeting that we held with not-for-profits and government, 
they were one of those people that said, no, nah, this will never work. We've tried it before. But two weeks later, they actually came around and they became one of our biggest assets in the process. One thing I generally do when I'm circling around who I want at the table or who should be at the table is to ask people to invest something in the process. Invest doesn't necessarily mean money. doesn't necessarily mean doing a mini project. It could be as simple as saying, I want to do a phone call with you. We'll touch base and we'll set up a call for next week and we'll have a chat for 15 minutes. It could be something really simple. If they follow through on that, then you know they're somewhat invested in the process. If they don't return your calls or, or don't make any further inquiries, um, then you know it doesn't mean much to them. And I, I think that's a really good test. <clears throat> I think I've found through experience that it's more it's not so much about getting everyone on board um, and trying to then delete a couple. It's more about saying, okay, who needs to be in this and who do we invite in rather than who do we exclude? Because if you start with everyone, particularly when you get into very complex situations, sometimes, you know, 20 organisations all want to be on board because they don't want to miss out, you know, but they don't want to play an active role either, so they become a drag on the process. So you've got to be very, I think, clear about who you want in and uh, who you don't want in. So on the day, so we've done a lot of our work. We've done a lot of one-on-ones. We found out what was what people's fears were. We actually touched base with quite a few people before this meeting, and we said, to the company, for example, we said, by the way, there's a couple of people that are going to show up from here, here, and here. These are the sorts of things they're going to say, which might seem confronting at first to you. However, this is why they're saying them. And so we, we do some of that framing and preparation work. Likewise, with community interests, we'd be doing the same thing about priming them for what might happen. On the day, it was pretty simple things. You meet and greet people as they're coming in the building. You, you meet and greet them at the door. You make sure everyone talks in a common language. So whenever there's jargon used or um, concepts that you know not everyone's going to understand, you have to actually stop there and break it down for everyone. Another thing we did was we wrote up from the one-on-one meetings we had, um, I picked out a whole lot of quotes. You know, quite often people would say something really, really telling and you'd capture that thing. And I didn't attribute it to them, but I just wrote it on a bit of paper and stuck it on the wall so that when people entered the room, they could see all these quotes and some of them were very familiar to them, and they're going, wow, that's that's what we said. So that helped increase that comfort of them being part of that process, but at the same time helped them realise there were other views out there. And so, you know, they saw their own view, but they also, also saw others. And I guess to round it off, and there's a lot more to this story, we had um, one of the really big success factors in this project was we had community, people who'd come from community housing or social housing backgrounds um, that were now working at the company tell their story. So we sort of had people who were traversing both sides of, of this corporate and community divide talking about um, how this career that they had with the company had really changed their lives. And if I've got time, I'll, I'll talk through one of those quickly in a moment. But so any any burning questions for now? Right now we will hand it over to the audience. So there is someone saying... Phil, have you thought how you would do the same Wagga process virtually, which is what we're now faced with? Great yeah. question. Yeah, I, to be honest, I don't think anything really changes. It's just you're communicating through different mediums. Clearly, when you're doing remote communication, you you don't get the cues that you would get in a physical situation, so you've just got to work a little bit harder. So what it might mean, for example, instead of just doing a half-hour one-on-one sitting down with someone having a coffee, it might mean that you have two or three one-on-ones virtually 
or you might have to go a bit longer than you normally would. Um, I wouldn't say the fundamental process changes, which is why um, I love the fact that once, and I'll present you with a model in the moment that we've already talked about to some degree, but this is a model you can check in on when you're going through a collaborative process and, and say, you know, have I got this bit? Have I got this bit? Am I doing this bit well? So I might, Michelle, if it's okay, I might continue on into that. Yeah, we've got a few minutes left. Um, and I'd encourage anyone, if you do have questions for Phil, please go ahead and drop your questions into the Q&A box. That way we won't miss them. I'll also be looking at the Facebook Live feed. So if you've got any specific questions that you would like addressed to him, then now is your chance. And then I'm sure Phil's going to share very quickly about his book before we wrap up. So we talked about this with the fears. So when you're going into a collaborative situation, just turn those fears around and, and just think about this. So number one, do I have the people with the right mindset and skills? Because you've got to work at that level. You've got to make sure people do have that win-win mindset. They can see that this coming together is going to be beneficial and that they're not in that you're helping them to address any fears they have on the personal side. Um, as someone mentioned, there's the psychological safety bit, which is all about trust and making sure that you have trust because without that trusting dynamic, people aren't going to go the extra yard. They're not going to put out their best creative ideas. They're going to hold them back and maybe be a drag on the process. And the third part is make sure the purpose is clear. There's clarity around it and you're addressing or identifying any conflicts of interest or other agendas that are getting in the way of that. And quite often you have to keep circling around your participants until you solve that bit. And if you can't solve it, there's not a lot of point going forward. So you're simultaneously working on three levels here as a, say, a leader or a facilitator in this process. I call it being a human sheepdog. You know, you're <laughs> running around the back of the pack all the time and making sure everyone's on board. It's quite... It is quite draining for a period of time, but if you build a culture of collaboration, then everyone in the group starts taking on that role and you do it together. So that's that's the real challenge, that cultural piece. Okay, we have another question, and this is how do you ensure that all voices are heard and also to reduce facilitator bias? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what facilitator bias is. Is that around reliance or maybe the characteristic? I would assume every every facilitator because of our own background and history and desires and wants and needs yeah. has a bias as much as we might try to be objective. Yeah. No such thing as objectivity in that context. So right. how, do you re, how do you put to the side what you want to see as a result in comparison to what the collective wants to see? That's right. So it's, it's, it's your... It's you as a facilitator, but also the EQ of the people involved. However, you, you're dead right. You, there's a lot of factors. If you think about what builds trust, you know, we could come up with a raft of, I reckon, 30 or 40 words that would say, you know, things that build trust. And it's about um, having equity in the process. Everyone thinking they're, they're, um, they're, they're being treated fairly. Um, they're being listened to. Um, people are being responsive to their comments and needs. Um, there's not little, um, cliques or, or schisms forming in the group there's, there's transparency there's sharing um, so as a facilitator you've you know it's common sense really you've got to make sure everyone has a chance to be heard if some people are dominating the conversation you've got to take them aside at the right time and potentially make them aware of that fact um, and, a, and a range of other things so i think uh, one, one of the most exciting situations is for example in companies where you have 
um, giving foundations within large companies, and the CEO is often on on that uh, on the committee for the foundation. That people don't they don't talk about anything when the CEO is in the room. So quite often, um, I would facilitate that process to say, well, why don't you leave? You just um, ask the CEO if he'd, he'd like to come in right at the end, and you just present, you know, what you've thought about to him or her at that point in time. And they think that's great because then they can talk freely. The CEO thinks it's great because that means it's only 15 minutes of their time rather than 60 minutes. And so, you know, some of it is about just helping to massage that dynamic. Yeah, and I think if I can add to that, it's what you're saying is it's about being in tune with the vibe and the dynamic and the response in the room and from the individuals. That's right. And adjusting your own practice accordingly, which, you know, all great facilitators do. Um, Another question, does every collaboration require a leader? Yeah, good, good question. As I said before, um, I tend personally tend to want to come in as an early stage facilitator, then design a process so that it doesn't rely on me um, going forward. So that's always my goal is to make sure I'm exiting out of the process. Sometimes you do need that lead facilitator at the start. And uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, I won't go into detail, but in Burke in regional New South Wales, another very difficult project with a lot of different competing interests, it actually was beneficial to have an independent person leading that off because no one locally could easily bring it together um, because of baggage associated with their role or their background. So that can work. But the goal is over time that everyone, um, I guess, takes on this leadership mindset. So this is something you've got to build and maintain and I would say protect. And it's not just one leader's role to protect it. That, that initial leader has to make it clear to all the others. We're all leaders here. We all have to build, maintain and protect this uh, culture of collaboration that we have. Fantastic. you got one minute to talk about your book. Okay. So there's a lot more to this story. So I will, um, I'm happy to talk offline if everyone has any uh, big question. I'm going to change my virtual background um, very briefly. Is that going to work? You see that? It's so exciting to have a new book coming out, by the way. I right. So, so fantastic timing to launch in the middle of the COVID-19. But actually the launch went really well. It was a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, there's the, the real book in in real form. Um, so this is about connecting profit with purpose. And it's trying to think a little bit above philanthropy and what we'd call reputation and brand building. It's saying, how do we really create value together? So it gives lots of examples. Um, it's all about collaboration in more complex forms. Um, but I think this is such an exciting space to be in. And then I offer five different ways you can get started in that. So it is aimed at, in some ways, it's aimed at corporate executives, but I give, I give the perspective of everyone, not for profits, government. Um, and advisors to these processes um, just so that you you know you can work out where you can apply some leverage in this in this um, uh, you know making the world a much greater place at scale and, and by the way and we have so hope. someone's saying fabulous really practical grounded talk there's lots of um, great feedback congratulations epic so go you We'll, we'll drop this into the main group, but it seems to me that we go to your website, which is philpreston.com.au, and use our code, which is yep. superhuman. What yep. does our code give us? A uh, discount, sorry. If you go to book on the website, go to the book menu, book orders, then if you use superhuman, it's twenty four ninety five for the book instead of twenty nine ninety five. There um, you go. Be that um that only works if you're ordering the physical book through my website. It doesn't work if you go to Amazon and all the other links there. 
if you yeah. can just um, by the way, way, if anyone's written a book, go order from his website because he gets more money that way. Otherwise, he's going <laughs> to Amazon and other people. Hey, you so, said it. You said it, Michelle. Any, anything else, any final words of wisdom you want to wrap up with? I'm going to leave you with um, someone who inspires me, even though I've never met them and, and will never meet them because it's a lady who was a great educator. Um, her first name was Maria. I don't know if you know who I might be referring to. The surname starts with M. And she has a school system named after her. Montessori. Montessori. Maria Montessori. She she was interested in not in teaching kids how to learn facts and figures. She was in, interested in teaching kids how to learn. And, and I love that distinction. And she understood the power of imagination and creativity in the learning process. But more than that, she understood that it takes courage and strength to put into action. So yeah, what a combination. That's, yeah, that's, that's my takeaway. Incredibly powerful. Thank you so much, Phil, for your graciousness and being willing to collaborate with us on this Superhuman Summit and be part of this collective journey. We hugely appreciate it. For those who want to stay on, the next speaker is at 12 o'clock and that's a couple who are speaking together, Casey and Urbane, talking about a program that they do called Being Undone. So jump in. You still have time to register for other speakers later in the week and to join our Facebook group. Thanks again so much. We appreciate it, Phil. Thank you.